0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Can I pause for a second and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. Well, I gotta say, it was definitely a a nice surprise for my birthday this year. I I ended up I got money from the government instead of me giving them money because obviously my birthday was on tax day, and and the fact that uh, I was getting a, a twelve hundred dollar check from the government on my birthday was I'm gonna say it was a nice surprise. Uh, but hey, at least it was a little bit of the money that I've I paid in taxes. But I'm I'm going down a rabbit hole. You guys are here on the Brian Nichols Show. Yes, I am your humble host, Brian Nichols, and you are here on the uh, the Brian Nichols Show, part of the We Are Libertarians Network. And uh, of course, you are here uh, for uh, uh, as always a, a phenomenal guest joining here on the Brian Nichols Show. Because my goal here on the Brian Nichols Show is to bring on people who are infinitely smarter than me, and today is no exception. As today I am joined by libertarian economist and former uh, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, Dan. Mitchell uh now Dan Dan is well known within libertarian politics um specializing fiscal on fiscal policy as well as particularly uh, focusing on tax reform international tax competition and the economic burden of government spending prior to joining uh, institutions like Cato um Dan was a senior fellow at uh, organizations uh, more the conservative ilk like Heritage Foundation and an economist for Senator Bob Packwood and the Senate Finance Committee his work has been published in numerous outlets including the Wall Street Journal New York Times Villanova Law Review Public Choice, Emory Law Journal, Forbes, USA Today, Offshore Investment, Playboy, and investment, Investor's Business Daily. He's appeared on all major TV networks and has given speeches in almost 40 states and more than 30 countries. He has a PhD in economics from George Mason University, and he joins The Brian Nichols Show today to discuss a very important question, and that is, what is the temporary trade-off between health outcomes and economic outcomes as it pertains to the our response to the COVID-19 pandemic here in the United States? So, without further ado, on to the show, Dan Mitchell here on The Brian Nichols Show.
2: Uh, glad to be with you.
0: Absolutely glad to have you, sir. So you are a public policy economist uh, hailing from the great Washington, D.C., our our wonderful capital of the United States. But right now it has been um, more affectionately labeled as the swamp. So let's kind of start out this, Dan. Let's let's show the folks out there in in uh, the greater uh, United States podcasting world that you are not a swamp creature and you are one of the good guys. So let's kind of walk through um, your, your bio and kind of explain um, how you got to uh, where you are in libertarian economics today.
2: Well, the first thing I'll say in my defense is that I'm not actually in Washington D.C. I'm in Fairfax, Virginia. <laughs> there we go. Uh, and, I, and I am outside the beltway. Uh, you know, the, the the I-495 beltway that circles Washington. Uh, the old joke is, if you're inside the beltway, you're in the bubble. You're part of the swamp. You uh, you've been co-opted by big government. So I like to think where I live and where I happen to be right now. I'm at least semi-insulated from the corrupting forces of uh, of Washington, D.C. Uh, But to to answer your question, uh, I came to this area for my Ph.D. at George Mason University, which is actually less than a mile from my house. Uh, That's a great center for free market thought, public choice scholars, Austrian school experts. Uh, And once I got here and started working on my Ph.D., I started working in the think tank world uh, I did a little stint on Capitol Hill for Senator Packwood and the Finance Committee many years ago. Uh, but most of my career has been at the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute. And now I'm chairman of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity, which is a uh, a smaller think tank focusing especially on international economic issues.
0: So nowadays, what would you say is your primary focus as you're, we're taking a look into uh, to economics? Is there any particular area you like to uh, to specialize in?
2: For most of my career, I have focused on fiscal policy, uh, taxes, tax reform, tax competition, uh, the economic burden of government spending, uh, issues related to things like entitlement reform, uh, decentralization of government activities. Uh, But of course, in the last uh, couple of months, I've written so many things uh, related to coronavirus uh, because it is literally draining, I suppose, not literally, figuratively draining the oxygen out of the room. And so every so often, I can't resist. I'll write about other things because I have a, a daily column that I put out at uh, uh, International Liberty. Uh, just any search engine type in Dan Mitchell blog, it'll, it'll be the first thing to come up. But again, for the last two months, It's a coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus,
0: (laughs) and understandably so, right? I mean, obviously, we have not seen something of this global scale in—I mean, I want to say probably World War II—but even still, the economic impact that we're seeing, really, as not only a nation but as a as a world, is really government saying stop, like complete stop on all you know production, on all on all commercial activities, and. It's it's really, it's kind of weird to experience this firsthand because it, and, and the way I actually heard it explained, I, I believe it was Peter Schiff who said this, it was, it's the great pause. And that's kind of what it feels like right now is that literally somebody hit a gigantic pause button on literally everything across the world. And it seems like we're, we're finally getting to this point where we're starting to maybe get the engines at least turned on, not revving, but we're turned on right now. Here's a recording April 13th. So let's kind of set the stage here, um, Dan. You know, obviously we're looking at a situation where we have a global pandemic and there's been really two schools of thought. Uh, one is shut everything down, like close everything. The the folks who are at the highest risk, we need to take their lives and their livelihoods into consideration the most because they are the most at risk ...for this very dangerous disease. On the other hand, and this is the argument that I want to have you come to the the show today... ...is that our response, this economic response that we're making... uh, ...in terms of shutting quite literally everything down yes can stop the spread of covid to those um at risk folks and i you know we could even go into the the questions is it actually the most effective means but then the the flip side and that is the economic impact and and you mentioned um your your blog uh, international liberty and you wrote an article about this way back i say way back because it feels so way back um about three weeks ago uh march 24 the temporary trade-off between health outcomes and economic co- outcomes and that's partly why I want to have you in the show today, Dan. Actually, I'd say it's probably the main focus because I have seen this this two schools of thought. Either A, you want people to be able to go into the workplace if they are not at risk or if they are at the very least lowest risk categories to be able to still keep things going. The other camp saying, don't you care about people's lives? Don't you care about the people who are sick? So as I've set the, the stage here for you, Dan, take that Argument And and let's kind of walk through what is the best way, or at least the most economically rational, logical, rational way to approach this uh, coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic that we find ourselves in today.
2: The challenge, of course, with the caveat that there's still a lot we don't know about the disease, uh, but the challenge that we face is that both sides have a lot of truth. Uh, There's no question if you lock down the economy, maintain very strong social distancing, uh, you can reduce the spread of the disease. On the other hand, when you do that, you're imposing tremendous damage on the economy. Uh, A lot of it, very likely, will be permanent damage. Uh, And and frankly, some of it is going to be totally independent of government, because even if state governments weren't ordering these uh, lockdowns and shutdowns, uh, you still would have lots of people... Uh, not going out and shopping not going out and socializing uh and, and frankly even if we think about what's going to be happening say four months from now uh will people be going to movie theaters will they be uh going to restaurants uh will they be going on cruise ships so i suspect that there are some permanent changes uh, to our economy and to our culture that uh that are simply because the disease of the disease and will have nothing to do with what the government is doing today. Now, with that out of the way, uh, the point I made in my column a couple of weeks ago about the trade-off between health and economics is simply this: Everyone is talking about flattening the curve. What is the what is the goal of flattening the curve? It's to reduce the rate of new infections. Why? Well, at least when that originally came out, it was to make sure that the capacity of the healthcare system wasn't overwhelmed. If there were, say, you know, 500 ventilators in a metropolitan region, you didn't want a thousand critically ill patients who needed ventilators. And so the idea was, oh my God, this is gonna spread. So many people are gonna get it. We have to at least slow down the pace of them getting it so we don't have these these, uh, horrible triage type decisions being made where, okay, this person's 83 years old and not very healthy, so we're just gonna let them die in a hallway in the hospital. Uh, And in effect, what is being done Uh, With those kinds of decisions is we're saying, well, we're going to make everyone poorer to, to save some lives. And that's a judgment call. Uh, now how many lives do you save? I mean in theory you could save lives by banning the personal automobile or setting speed limits at five miles an hour. We don't do those things because we know it simply doesn't make sense. So we do make trade-offs all the time as a society. we make trade-offs individually. There's a risk anytime any of us uh, take an air uh, an airplane someplace. it's a tiny tiny, tiny risk. But yeah, we could die as a result of taking an airplane. We're more likely actually to die uh, taking a trip to the supermarket Mm. in our car. Uh, So so, so we make trade-offs all the time. What what irritates people now is we have politicians making trade-offs and we're concerned about the fact that what are politicians trying to do? Well, maybe part of their decision-making is, well, what's in the best interest of society? But a lot of times we suspect with considerable accuracy that they're making decisions on the basis of what's going to maximize the votes that they get. And so sometimes it's in their interest to, to, uh, to make everything seem worse than it is, uh, to use any excuse to, to grab more power, to spend more money. Uh, so I think it's a very healthy thing for us to have skepticism of what the politicians are saying and what they're asking us to do. But again, that doesn't change the fact that there are some underlying real-world health concerns, and we're trying to balance those things out, both individually, uh, in terms of our families, uh, and, of course, Mm society-wide.
0: Well, and this is the part that's kind of hit me by surprise. I I didn't expect to have this type of reaction that we've been receiving from from folks, and it it has turned into this kind of... it shouldn't be political, Dan, but it's become political, and that's the part that drives me crazy. And I, and the only um, comparison I can really make to try and fit what I think is happening right now with this response to COVID-19, and it's really the response to the response to COVID-19, and that's when I look at what's happening with um, the climate change argument, the, the, the Green New Deal argument, and it really comes down to either A, you're with us and trying to promote this brand new green new deal that we say is going to change the future it's going to save uh, you know the planet in 10 years because right now we're on that ticking time bomb 10 years the the world's going to change as we know it and if you're not with us you are a science denier, and I'm hearing that today, and this is what's kind of catching me off guard, is I'm hearing this same argument, you're, you're a science denier, only instead of it being a science denier, it's you don't care about people, you, you, you only care about money because you're only talking about the economics. And you know I've seen people and I I will raise my hand saying, well listen, there are people who are going to lose their lives because of just the mere economic impacts whether it's it's they're losing their jobs, they're not able to put bread on the table, they're not able to, you know, deal with whether whatever whatever social issue they're dealing with whether it's anxiety, depression, uh, you know, there's so many things that are are negative externalities as a result of these economic downturns that I would dare say have as much, if not more of an impact than the the number of folks who are going to be impacted negatively by COVID-19 directly as a disease. So I, I think now we get to the scary part where, as you discussed, we are now discussing trade-offs. What are we willing to risk and and what is the reward? And it sounds so gross to use the word reward, and we're talking about, you know, quite literally people's lives, but that that really is what it comes down to, Things, all things in life, I would dare say are based in some form of economics. And in this case, it's supply and demand. So um, I'll I'll frame this question to you in this way, Dan, because I've had this question framed to me, and I said, instead of me trying to answer the question uh, completely out of my element, let's go ahead and ask the experts. And that question is, is there a, a a, a study or something that we can look back to and say, listen, we can objectively state that per what let's just say per per percent of unemployment rate you can on average see x number of of people who are negatively impacted with their lives you know in more terms of mortality is that something that we can say listen this is something we need we need to tangibly take as as real information and and be concerned with or is this something that we're kind of unfortunately we're stuck in talking in abstract
2: There is real-world evidence. It's uh, actually used all the time in the legal system and the regulatory analysis apparatus of the government, uh, uh, where there's very strong data on the health of a society in terms of longevity, average lifespans, and the prosperity of a society. Simply stated, people in rich countries, all other things being equal, live longer than people in poor countries. If If you're going to choose where to be born in the world, you don't want to be born, say, in South Sudan. Uh, You want to be born in a rich Western society because your lifespan uh, will be much longer because you're in a healthier society uh, because of – all the all the things that are made possible by prosperity, uh, whether you're talking about healthcare, infrastructure, the quality of life. Uh, so there is this trade-off, and there's all sorts of analysis and studies about you know how much should you spend to try to save one life, and sometimes they measure it in terms of things like quality life years. I mean, it all gets very technical and and probably probably very boring, but it does happen. We do measure these things. Courts measure them when they're looking at, uh, mm-hmm. at legal issues. Uh, regulatory agencies look at it. Uh, I just gave the example before about you know how much money do you want to spend uh, for a policy that would save one life? Well, right. in some cases, like mandating seatbelts, that actually, by a, by a traditional cost-benefit analysis, that saves lots of lives and it's very worth it because the cost of installing the seatbelts is so low. Whereas the absurd example I gave you earlier about, you know, banning private automobiles or requiring five mile an hour speed limits, we instantly and naturally reject that because it's so preposterous. But given that we have, what, 30,000 or something fatalities on the roads every year, well – what, what are you? You don't you want people to die? Why don't you want five mile an hour speed limits? So so yes, these trade offs get made, and and one of the big trade offs, at least especially in the long run, and this is why I, I in the title of my column uh, I specified uh, that there's only a temporary trade off because in the long run the the correlation between the wealth of a society and the health of a society is very strong. In the short run, though. We are dealing with this painful trade-off because of the coronavirus, in part because we just don't know the answers on some things. And what's frustrating, to sort of get me back to one of my favorite topics, which is criticizing ineffective and incompetent government— It would be great if we were more like some of these East Asian economies uh, that were more decentralized and more market driven in terms of testing and and personal protective equipment. South Korea.
0: I mean, look at South Korea. They, They had testing readily available within weeks.
2: Yeah. Now, they've had to deal with being neighbors to China and all the viruses that have come out of China, SARS and things like that. You know, they're more sensitive to it. So I'm not really blaming necessarily uh, policymakers for our somewhat slower reaction, but I am definitely blaming the FDA and the CDC for having these just Incredibly silly bureaucratic hurdles, uh, where you can't uh, you can't start producing new equipment without getting uh, some bureaucrat to check you know, five boxes on a form. Uh, you can't unveil a test without some lengthy, complicated uh, uh, FDA uh, procedure for approval. I mean, in a normal environment, that kind of regulatory burden is a hassle. It's like, uh, you know, driving over a bumpy, curving road when you'd rather just drive on a straight line to get to a certain destination. But but it's not a deadly thing. Well, when you're dealing with something like a coronavirus, the impact of these government rules... People presumably are dying because the government's regulations are so inane and so senseless these bureaucrats, these bureaucracies don't want to give up control. Uh, they think that somehow they're all knowing and all and they should be all powerful in this field. And in reality, the lesson one of the lessons we should be learning is that okay, if the government wants to say these are the, the quality standards you have to meet for a protective mask fine. Put those quality standards on a website and say, if we catch you making masks that don't meet these standards, we're going to throw your CEO in jail. Okay, let's do that. That's a reasonable compromise. But don't have it where you can't actually start producing the mask until some some bureaucrat six weeks later can swing by your factory uh, and then pick up some masks and take them back to Washington for then a six week trial period. (laughs) You can literally kill people. With that kind of senseless check the box bureaucratic approach,
0: or, or let's like take it a step further like just allow people to make the mask and say, listen, here's our CDC or FDA guidelines. We say that as you a consumer, a rational smart consumer, you should be looking for these you know these certain criteria to be to have been met. and if they've been met, we will give our FDA CDC seal of approval, and you know that that product has been met by our standards to be a safe product. and if you don't do that, then, well, I'm sorry if you don't if you buy a product that does not have our seal, then we and we can't be held responsible for whatever happens as a result of that. And and one no look further than than what we have with the supplement industry for for you know weightlifting and so forth. I mean, you can go to what bodybuilding.com and buy any supplement you want. Everyone says at the very bottom of it, this has not been approved by the FDA. But for some reason, the protein powder still helps me when I lift weights to get stronger and get bigger muscles. It's amazing how that works. And it's almost as if I don't need to be told by the CDC, by the FDA, what is and is not good for me that I, as a rational human being, can make those decisions for myself, and one thing that's been driving me crazy, Dan, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn the conversation this way, it is the, the argument that has been, trust the experts, and, and I've been going crazy, because I hear this, this parroted quite a bit throughout, not only the media, but also from people, by and large, in, in everyday life, it's saying, trust the experts, trust the experts, and then I ask the question, well, which experts, and then there's silence, because when that question gets asked, all of a sudden now it's it's putting the the onus on the argument the onus on on the the people who are actually the quote unquote experts to make a rational logical substantive position and in many cases where they have a differing of opinion to then in the court of public opinion, battle it out to find out what's going to be the best solution. And I feel that we've gotten to a point as a society where we as a public have so abdicated our personal responsibility to trusting the experts that we now look at these experts who've been put in front of us and have been labeled experts by name institution here that's been put in place by government. And now we're, we're giving these people more and more um, credibility where I would dare say a lot of times they at the very least don't deserve it. But then we have experts. Let's just take you, for example, right? An economic, uh, you know, a person who's I would say an, an expert in economics and free market economics at that, yet people won't say, look at the experts and then point to you when they're you know coming from the argument of more government. So I would say, what would be the, the free market economist's response to? trust the experts. Should we really trust the experts or should we trust what makes sense?
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com/system
2: first let me say something about the uh, the testing and the bodybuilding supplements and that whole issue the easy answer, the logical answer to so much of this is to get the FDA and the CDC out of the business and rely on things like Underwriters Laboratory, which is, of course, a private testing and verification uh, service. I think that would be much more sensible, much more efficient than what we have right now. And I should have mentioned that earlier, but since it came to mind, I wanted to throw that out there before I got to your question about the experts. So regarding the experts, you're exactly right. Whose experts Uh, When you talk about something like uh, climate change, there are lots of experts out there, but they tend to be people who are getting fat and happy with government grants because it pays to be an alarmist on these issues. Now, does that mean they're wrong? I have no idea. I'm not a climate scientist, uh, but I do know enough about public choice economics and the perverse incentives that you get when people's livelihood depends on saying X, even if they really think Y. It makes me very, very suspicious. But but let's even let's even set that aside and assume that people have nothing but pure motives. Everyone who's an expert on a certain topic is vulnerable to having tunnel vision. So if we took all the uh, 18th century French literature professors at a university and said from now on you're in charge of running the university, well, you'd probably have the best 18th century French literature department in the entire country. But would you have? The right amount of biology professors, the right amount of uh, finance professors. Uh, what would happen to uh, you know everything from you know the structure of the intramural program at the university uh, to the football team uh, to the you know the dormitory. Uh, building and stuff like that. Being an 18th century French literature professor is probably a wonderful thing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you should you should be making the call on everything involved with a university. And likewise, if you're somebody at the CDC, uh, or even, as much as I hate to say this, I'm sure there are some competent expert people at the World Health Organization, you probably do have a lot to add to the conversation. But does that mean that you're the only person who should say anything about this debate? Are you the only person who's qualified to look at these trade-offs between, well, do you completely sabotage and kill the economy with the negative long-term consequences that has on longevity, mental health, all sorts of aspects that we should be, that should be part of this conversation? Uh, Of course you want a broader array of experts. Even if we're talking about completely well-meaning, completely intelligent people without an axe to grind, which, of course, is probably a little bit of a fantasy to begin with.
1: <laughs> Quite
0: literally a little bit of a fantasy to begin with. And then this – I think what we just did here is we we painted this picture very, very well. And I'm going to pr- try to bring it full circle because you mentioned about you know, the 18th century French scholar at that, that college. And it made me really think back. i was actually just reading this article and it said if we were experiencing COVID-19 in – The time period of the Spanish flu, 1917, 1918, that COVID-19 would be much worse. And I stopped for a moment. and I thought to myself, isn't that funny that they just completely acknowledged our entire position in, in a headline? Because what's different between 1918 and 2020? And... The, the obvious answer is an increase in technology an obvious answer is the increase in interconnectivity um globalism for whatever people want to argue about globalism it's it's pros it's cons I don't care the fact that we are in a global society now and looking at where we are 2020 versus 1918 I would dare say that the economic uh conditions of people across the globe and this is can obviously be supported by in, in empirical data saying, People are objectively in a much better position, you know, GDP per capita than they were back a hundred years ago. And it's because of those advancements, not only in technology, but because there was that incentive structure in place for, again, yes, an open economy, people being able to engage in commerce that created a situation where now we're dealing with COVID-19 and we're not seeing millions and millions of deaths. And I mean, we are, we are so lucky to be in the the area the era that we are in currently, but I think we're almost forgetting the reason that we are in such a good position is because we were in, in embracing and supporting these policies that were at the very least allowing things to progress. And now we're seeing, like you mentioned, Dan, 2020. What's holding us back? It's been the response of government. It's been the response of these unelected bureaucrats who are deciding what is and is not good without having to have that that you know that instant response from the market, really an instant response from the consumer. And we saw firsthand, there were companies out there who were ready to answer the, the call. I mean, we had companies who were ready to per, produce ventilators and masks in an instant, but they, they couldn't, they weren't allowed to because of government red tape. And And like you said, Dan, it quite literally did impact people to the extent that it cost people lives. And that's something that I think the experts, as they have been labeled, um, they need to take that into consideration, but also I think that they need to have that as a little bit of egg on their face because those are the experts who have been put into positions of power within our bureaucratic system of government. And they have not had to really answer for, you know, their, their beliefs or, um, you know, what their, their expertise are until now they're being pushed to the forefront of a national issue, a global issue, because now, you know, it, it's it's rubber hitting the road, it's like, okay, you're the experts, fix it, <laughs> and and they're all kind of like, uh-oh, like, now we're at the point where we're getting called in their bluff, and we gotta show the cards, and the reality is, we have all twos, and I'm sorry, you're not gonna win the game that way, and I think now they're at that point, they're just trying to, like, save face, until they get to the point that, either A, this kind of just starts to fizzle out on its own, much like what happened in 1918, 1970-1918, uh, um, or, we find a vaccine, which... Fingers crossed could happen sooner rather than later. And, and I know that there's a lot of companies who are working on that. Um, but we really need to see something happen. But right now, those experts, again, are the ones who are standing in the way.
2: They are. They are standing in the way. And one of the things that I hope comes out of this whole exercise is that instead of just giving the FDA and the CDC a big budget increase, which is the normal let's reward failure approach that you get in Washington, I'm hoping, desperately hoping, that maybe somehow even some of the more statist-oriented members of Congress will say, you know what? People died because we had too much bureaucracy. Uh, let's try to streamline this process. Let's shift to underwriter's laboratory or or even if it's just that middle of the road approach I said where the FDA and the CDC put up guidelines on the internet and say, okay, anyone who can meet these guidelines can produce X, Y, and Z and we're not going to try to require pre-approval you know, ahead of time. There are all sorts of things we can do to either marginally or significantly make our system more flexible, more adaptable to dealing with this kind of crisis. So um, maybe I'm just being naive, but I would think that this has been such a terrible situation that even some of the people I know in Washington who are on the left, who always think government is the answer, I'm hoping that they're going to draw at least some right conclusions out of this in terms of what has to be done uh, to have us better prepared in the future. And one other thing I think uh, that might tell us something, although it's too early to, to know what lessons we'll get out of it, uh, is different countries are trying different approaches. Uh, Sweden right now is uh, famous for having a more relaxed approach on this. Uh, now, having said that, a lot of you, know, a lot of the people who are libertarian-minded, are citing Sweden. But at least in the short run, it appears that's a costly strategy with higher infection rates and death rates than some of the neighboring uh, Scandinavian countries. However, uh, it could be that in the long run, Sweden comes out ahead because yes, they bit the bullet. They incurred higher infection rates, rates and death rates in the short run, uh, but it enabled them to keep their economy a little bit more alive uh, and to get through the to have the in effect the the disease burn through the economy quicker. Now it could be that maybe we learned that Sweden made the wrong calculation, but I'm glad that there are different approaches out there by uh, different countries so that we can hopefully learn from that experience as well. I mean, obviously. We mentioned the East Asian economies before. Hopefully, one thing we learn is that it's so important to have the capacity to test and to provide personal protective equipment. Uh, And the East Asian economies, I think, have done a good job on that. We can certainly, even already at this stage, we can take that as a lesson to be learned. But there are probably going to be other lessons that we're going to learn by seeing how different countries have handled it. Above and beyond, of course, as you indicated, the biggest lesson of all is that it helps to be a rich country. (laughs) <laughs> and of course, how do you become a rich country? By having free markets and limited government.
0: And I'm hoping, and you mentioned things that we can learn as we walk away from COVID-19. And I say walk away, we're just a month into it. Um, but you know, I'm hoping that we can at least look at what the United States did. And it was starting off as kind of this approach to federalism. And I don't want to get into another conversation about federalism, because that's a, a horse I've beaten a million times in the past here in The Brian Nichols Show. Um, but at least from a federalist approach, we were seeing localities respond to the COVID, uh, COVID-19 pandemic coming to America. And and they were doing it in in kind of this way that the Eastern Asian countries have, and, and that we were seeing in Europe, where each individual state or each individual locality or municipality were making decisions. I mean, I in Philadelphia, we were closed down. I, I would say the, the day after the NBA canceled their season, I mean, we we were ready to rock and roll, you know, in in quarantine a month, you know, a- ago, and and we're we're seeing our numbers kind of you know stay pretty stagnant. All things considered, um, you know, we we quote unquote helped um, you know. Was it cut the curve or, or spread the curve, whatever the heck it was? Um, we did that, and that was that was great to see here in Philadelphia. But also, we saw a response in the free market. The the free market was answering a lot of the the questions that that governments were starting to question themselves. I mean, the NBA closing down, you know, their entire season. NHL suspending all um uh, their NHL ho- uh, playoff hockey's. You had the NCAA cancel all of March Madness, and this was all. In in uh, preventative uh, means from the free market, from the private sector, to to answer the areas where government was dropping the ball, or in many cases where government wasn't even responding. I mean, we had Mayor Bill De Blasio sitting in New York City and telling people tell people to go see Broadway shows uh, on the third of March, and and this is just weeks before New York City is hit with the the biggest pandemic that's ever hit the city. Um, and, and it's something that I think that we we. As libertarians, at the very least, can walk away from this, and and I'll leave this with you know for the last words to you, Dan. But I'm going to say, I think we can leave this saying, "Hey, look at look at. We argue all the time that at the very least we should try to reel things back and give more, um, get more power, more authority to the states and localities. Let them make some more of their decisions. And we saw with the COVID response that hey. We were right. You had an overarching government that was preventing um you know with its bureaucratic institutions, preventing companies from from answering the bell and actually providing real life-saving um, you know, whether it's products, services, etc. But also you had private sector or localities who were starting to shut down, starting to quote unquote quarantine themselves way before any government did. So Doesn't that really just speak to what we're saying every single day, that federalism, at the very least, is a good starting point for us to build a society around instead of this cookie-cutter, you know, one-shoe-fits-all approach that government seemingly has taken here in 2020?
2: The the lesson that I learned, of course, is that decentralization, federalism, is much better than a one-size-fits-all approach out of Washington. Because, frankly, what's best in terms of a— large city that's heavily reliant on mass transit like New York City, what's best there is going to be different than what's best in South Dakota. Uh, There are politicians in Washington right now saying, oh, there are some of these states that haven't uh, issued stay-at-home orders yet. Well, if you're in the middle of Wyoming- you don't need a stay-at-home order, and especially given that all the news and attention that's been given to this issue, I'm sure people in Wyoming are just as cognizant of social distancing uh, as people in Philadelphia and New York City and Washington, D.C. right now. Uh, so yes, let a thousand flowers bloom. Let, let's have some decentralized decision-making on this uh, uh, as part of our answer to this. Uh, but I'll close up with where I started there are still things we don't know. And I don't want to pretend to be, uh, uh, you know, it's bad enough when you get 2020 hindsight uh, armchair quarterback types. Uh, well, we're still dealing with things where we don't know. Uh, all we can do is just hope and pray that we come out of this uh, with as little damage to our country and to our economy and to our to our families as possible. And And that's going to mean striking the correct balance Letting markets perhaps play a bigger role than federal bureaucrats and politicians and regulators uh, and otherwise just hope for the best.
0: Amen, Dan. Well, listen, I will go ahead and make sure I include all links um, to not only your social media, but also to all the great works you're doing, uh, specifically mentioning that at International Liberty, um, which, again, I'll include the link uh, to that in the show notes as well. But just for folks who are listening along, where can they go ahead and follow you if they're interested in learning more about yourself, but also uh, interested in staying up to date with all the economic work that you're doing?
2: Well, uh, the organization I uh, run, the Center for Freedom and Prosperity, is freedomandprosperity.org. But in terms of my output of material, probably the easiest and simple thing to do is either follow me on Twitter, at Daniel J. Mitchell, although I'm sort of shadow banned. uh, So maybe the smartest thing is just to go to my blog, International Liberty, just go to any search engine, type in Dan Mitchell blog, and somewhere sort of on the top right, Uh, You can put in your email address and automatically every day uh, get the column mailed to you. I, of course, don't use the email address for anything else. There's no charge for it. Uh, I push out this material as part of the educational mission uh, that we have at the Center for Freedom and Prosperity.
0: Awesome. Well, listen Dan, it was an absolute pleasure and uh definitely we'll be sure to uh be keeping an eye on how things transpire and uh, as we, you know, looking back months ahead from now, we'll make sure we have you back in the show and we'll do a uh, a postmortem of this conversation and see where things stand and hey, maybe we'll be proven right, who knows.
2: Let's keep our fingers crossed we have some good news.
0: All right, folks, so that's going to wrap up my conversation with Dan Mitchell as we discuss the temporary trade-offs uh, when we look at the trade-up between health outcomes and the economic outcomes as it pertains to the covid 19 coronavirus pandemic as we are here April 2020 and uh, this is a conversation obviously that needs to be had uh, so please be sure to share with family and friends because this is definitely a question that is airing on a lot of people's minds as we approach may and we're starting to really question are we going to open up the country again and I think you know we need to make sure we are we are presenting a a, a smart, and well thought out, logical argument, and I think right here with uh, the conversation with Dan, especially, um, you know, as it pertains to his article, um, which I will obviously include as a link in the show notes, um, you know, speaks to exactly why it is so important. Do we get we get people back to work, um, but also doing it smartly. Um, so with that being said, guys, a couple of uh, housekeeping notes. Um, I had the up uh, the absolute pleasure of uh, joining our friend Kevin Warmhold over at his podcast, and uh, it's the Exchange, and we had a, a presidential debate. Um, between five of the uh, the Libertarian candidates, uh, Dan, tax agentist, Neff Berman, Adam Kokesh, Sam Robb, Mark Whitney, and Ken Armstrong. And yours truly was a co-moderator. Um, so that was an absolutely phenomenal time. I will be sure to include the link to that debate in the, uh, the show notes, bio, I'll also be doing a special re-air of this episode um, as a bonus in the next week or so. So if you uh, wanted to hold on to then, look for that re-air. Otherwise, you can go ahead and hunt it down in your podcast catcher or uh, just go ahead and click the link right there in the show notes. So, guys, with that being said, it was an absolute blast. Uh, and as always, if you want to follow me on social media, at bnicholsliberty, uh, both on Twitter and on Facebook. But, hey, you know what? I'm going to leave us there. It was an absolute uh, fantastic time with Dan Mitchell. Uh, as we discuss the temporary trade-off for health outcomes and economic outcomes for the coronavirus. But signing off for Dan Mitchell, it's Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.